All right, well, good morning, everybody. Like Jeremy uh, prayed, my name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors. I'm really glad you're here, and I get the privilege of uh, speaking to you today from Hebrews 3. Now, uh, I don't know if you're like me, probably not because I'm a little weird, just at least a little. But if you're, if you're anything like me, I, I kind of get into these um, books, TV shows, movies that show kind of the behind the scenes of a trial, trial lawyers, um, the, how they try to figure out the perfect strategy, especially like defense lawyers, to, to find that little loophole or that little thing that's going to create the reasonable doubt. Um, you know, I, th- I think we like to think that trials are all about the facts, and I think a lot of times they are, but at least in the books and the movies, it seems like it's always about finding that little inconsistency, that little lie, that little character flaw that they can use, especially when the facts are stacked against them, like the defense attorney knows that their client is guilty, right? And they have to find some sort of trick in order to, um, and, and again, this may not be real life. I know there's some attorneys in here, and you're probably like, uh, but this is my experience from movies and books and TV, right? And so uh, they try to find that inconsistency. When the facts are stacked against them, they then go after the key witness, right? They try to assassinate their character or find them in some little bitty inconsistency, some small lie that they can bring out to create reasonable doubt and say, you can't listen to anything this person says because they said they had hot dogs yesterday and they actually had hamburgers. What? Yeah, it's, it's always something like really, really strange like that. But we like to think it's based on the facts. And here's, here's something interesting. I think when someone is pressed on their story, when they're pressed on the facts, if they haven't had any inconsistencies, if they haven't made up something in order to make it sound better than it really should, if they've just been telling the truth, then that kind of seems to stay steady, right? It's the same thing in a job interview. If you're being interviewed for a job and you try to, make, you try to inflate yourself and make your accomplishments sound better than they were, sometimes you can get caught, right? Some, we even hear in the news, years later, people that falsified their resume and it comes back to haunt them because someone finally figures out that they inflated uh, themselves a little bit more than reality uh, or what was true. If you have character, if you have truth, when you're pressed, the truth, the, the true character is what gets shown. But if there's some inconsistency in the story, if there's some lack of character, when pressed, same thing is true. That seems like it comes to the forefront. It gets exposed a little bit. And we're four weeks into Hebrews, and we can already see a big theme here showing through. This is written to believers who are under attack, right? They've converted to following Jesus, and they thought that was going to be like make life easy, or it was going to be an easy thing to do, but they're finding out that's not the case, right? It goes against their community. They're losing their jobs, some of them being ostracized from their family, and they're beginning to question whether following Jesus is really actually worth it. They're being pressed, they're being attacked, and the writer's saying, here's what's going to happen. As you're under attack, your true character is going to show. Your true heart is going to show, and let's be sure that we have our eyes focused on the right thing, and we understand where our character truly comes from as followers of Jesus. In chapter 2, he uses words like drift and neglect because it seems like they're about to quit hanging in there. It's it's a dangerous state of mind that they're currently in. This drift and this neglect is beginning to erode their confidence in the future. And it's really the picture of the opposite of perseverance. 
right? When things get a little tough, they're like, forget this. This isn't what I signed up for. And so the question is, is what is their true character as followers of Jesus? And in order to counteract that drift and neglect, the writer of Hebrews wants to encourage, wants to instill confidence by making sure they're focused on the right things and in turn helping us to know what the right things are to focus on, to encourage them to understand the nature of who they are in Christ. The writer says others might quit, others might fall away, they might be lured by the deceitfulness of sin, but if we fix our eyes on Jesus, truly surrendered to him, we know that he is greater and his power and his character defines us. And this passage gave them, and of course in turn gives us, some key reminders to help us do that. So the question that kind of needs to be in the back of our minds today is what might reveal itself in our lives when we're pressed? What's the character that's going to show when we're under attack? What would our heart, what would our character show under scrutiny? And I got to tell you, it's not a very fun thing to think about. Once again, the writer of Hebrews is kind of like lining us up and smacking us around a little bit. Um, But it's a good reminder of how we find our true character in Christ. So let's pray together. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the book of Hebrews. We thank you for the truth. We thank you for your spirit that teaches us through your word. And God, I just pray that our hearts will be open to how you want to move in us today. That no one is here by accident. God, you brought us every single person into this room today, whether they knew it or not, because you had something you wanted to do in their heart and in their life. So I pray, God, that we would recognize it and say yes to it today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to start in Hebrews chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab the one that's in the cage under the seat in front of you or uh, right underneath you, and uh, it'll be page 1,103 in that Bible. If, it's, if you're not looking in that Bible, it's like almost at the back. You can pretty much start at the back and go toward the front, and you'll eventually find the book of Hebrews. But chapter 3, and we're just going to start with verse 1. And it says, Therefore, holy brothers... You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. So just one verse. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. So right off the bat, it's pretty clear the writer is, again, addressing believers. And the therefore that he uses, is that's always significant. It connects back to what's just been said. The main idea of chapter 2, which was Jesus is the perfect sacrifice for our sin because he was tempted. He knows what that's like, but he never gave in. He never sinned. He remained perfect. He knows the suffering of temptation, but without giving in. And remember, last week Derek told us he gets it, and he gets us. He understands what it's like. He gets it, and he gets us. And the writer knows that we have two great spiritual needs that are both fulfilled in Jesus. We need to hear from God. We need to know what he's like, what his purposes are for the world, what he desires from us. And we need a way to God because our sin cuts us off from the relationship we were created to enjoy uh, with him. So we have these two great spiritual needs. And right here in this verse, the writer is talking about both of those needs when he says to consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. The word consider here is significant. We lose a little bit of the meaning Um, Because in the original language, it had a lot of rich meaning. The idea is to concentrate firmly, to fix your thinking, to perceive clearly, to understand fully, to consider closely. So it's more than just like a passing thought. 
It's a, a concentrated effort to think about Jesus. And what does he want us to consider about Jesus? He says Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession. The apostle and high priest of our confession. So how does that meet those needs? How does Jesus being the apostle and the high priest of our confession meet those two needs? Well, our need to hear from God and have a way back to God, the word apostle means one who is sent, right? One who is sent. Jesus is not an apostle. He's the apostle. One who is sent. He is the son of God sent to us, the literal word of God sent to us. John 1 tells us he was with God and is God and that he became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus is the apostle. He's the word sent to us. Jesus said, if you want to know God, get to know me. Right? He doesn't speak for God. He is God. And therefore, hearing from Jesus is the same thing as hearing from God. Jesus was sent to reveal who God is to us, to you and to me. And so we have a way through Jesus to relate to the heart of God through his life. When we say Jesus gets it and he gets us, that's the way that we can relate to God. Jesus is our connection to who God is, and Jesus is God. He's the apostle sent to us. He's also the high priest. Now, the function of the high priest was to be a mediator between man and God. He was the way you got access to God in the Old Testament. This was a role the Jewish people were very familiar with. But when Jesus was crucified and rose again, he eliminated the need for anyone other than himself to be in that role of high priest. He offers a sacrifice so there can be redemption and reconciliation. He fulfills that second need, a way back to God, a way for our relationship with God to be right as he intended it to be. And that's significant because Jesus provided a way for us to be restored and for that relationship to be personal, not going through anyone else, just through Jesus. And so Jesus fulfills both of those needs. And to begin this chapter, the writer of Hebrews says, to those that share in the heavenly calling, that is followers of Christ, consider Jesus. Understand fully who he is and what he's done, that he's God's apostle. He's the final word from God. And he's God's high priest. He's the final way to God. So we have confidence in our calling as believers because of who Jesus is and what he's done. Not because of anything about us. Not because of anything to do with ourselves. Not because of anything to do with our circumstances. But because he fulfills those greatest spiritual needs. An understanding of who God is and how we can find salvation through him. He's truly all you need. So right there in verse 1, consider Jesus. Understand clearly who he is and what he has done. And honestly, we could end the sermon right there. That's a lot, right? If you understand clearly who he is and what he's done, then you have those spiritual needs met and you have everything you need. The writer says it again a little later in Hebrews 12 too. He says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne. Of God. So this is a theme that runs through that we'll see again later, that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. I better not bump that. That makes me, that, that, did you see that jiggle just then when I hit the table? We're going to deal with this later. Don't, don't let that bother you. All right. Our passage today, though, is all of chapter three, and so far we've done one verse, so let's get going. Um, 
the writer goes a little further to flesh out some thoughts that we should, some other things we should consider about Jesus. So let's go ahead and reread verse one, but keep going through verse six. He says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So what else should we consider about Jesus? Well, the writer says he's greater than Moses. Now, in our day and time, in our setting, I'm, I don't think many of you are going to be surprised by that statement. You probably didn't come in ready to argue that Moses is greater than Jesus today. Um, but this is where context and kind of the original audience is important for us to, to get the importance of this comparison. Because for the Jewish people... Moses was a hero of heroes. He was way up at the top of the list. You think about their first century perspective of what Moses accomplished. He put aside the luxury life that he had in Pharaoh's palace there in Egypt. He put that aside on behalf of his people. He heard from God through a burning bush. Not many of us have done that. Ah, he stood up to Pharaoh through repeated challenges. He was used by God to call down plagues. In the face of the giant Egyptian army that were chasing them down, he stood before the Red Sea, and he parted the Red Sea, right, with God's power. He saw God part the waters so they could safely pass. He spoke to God. He received the Ten Commandments. He came down from the mountain glowing because he had been so close to the presence of God. So Moses had this great list. He was a hero of heroes. He was way up high. So when the writer of Hebrews does this comparison, it has a bigger meaning than maybe it would just to us reading it casually. So how is Jesus greater than Moses? Well, the point here is not to talk down about Moses. He's not trying to say Moses isn't as great as y'all thought he was. He's saying just the opposite. Moses was faithful, but Jesus is worthy of more glory. Why? Well, he says Moses is part of the house. Jesus built the house. Moses was a servant in the house. Jesus is the son over all aspects of the house. You think about that distinction. What's the difference between a servant and a son? Well, the servant follows the word, follows the instruction of the owner if they're a good servant, does not own anything in the house or have a claim to anything in the house. But the son, on the other hand, owns the house by virtue of inheritance, by being part of the family. The son provides for everyone in the house from the wealth and the resources of the house. So Jesus is greater than Moses, worthy of more glory. And then the writer drops this encouragement. He says, we are his house. So the church, the followers of Jesus, you and me, the church is the house of God today. So this reminds us that we can have confidence because we have Jesus as a son over us as the house of God. You realize that puts us on a level with Moses. He says, Moses was part of the house. And then just a little bit later, he says, and we are his house. 
That was a, a major revelation and encouragement. Look at that last verse again. He says, we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And this is the first of two kind of big if statements in this chapter. Um, remember the writer's addressing believers who seem to be starting to drift. And he's calling them to consider Jesus to renew confidence in their calling. And this, this statement here, this if statement, is best understood to mean that the evidence that we are part of the household of God is that we don't throw away our hope in Christ, we don't find our confidence in anything other than him. Okay? The evidence that we're part of the household of God is that we don't throw away our hope in Christ and find our confidence in things other than him. This if is a serious thing, and a lot of the rest of Hebrews is written to help us kind of understand the meaning of this if. So we're going to be digging into it a lot over the next few weeks. But it's important you notice the phrasing here. We are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. It does not say you will become God's house if you do this. It says we are God's house. So it's not a condition of becoming something. It's a condition of already being something. Does that make sense? It's not a condition of becoming something. It's a condition of already being something. I hope this helps. Think of it this way. A lot of you probably know, or maybe you pick up on it as I'm speaking, because I'll slip into it without knowing, that I was born and raised in Texas. All right? And one thing that Texans are known for is the incredibly accurate term, y'all. Right? When addressing a group, y'all is the most accurate term. Some of y'all are looking at me like, <laughs> all right, I can, I can take it as a joke. It's all right. Um, so y'all, it's you all as a contraction. Again, extremely accurate. I never even thought about that being a strange word or that there was any other way to express that idea when you're talking to a group. You just say y'all. Because I'm a Texan, I say y'all without even thinking about it. But think about this. Does me saying y'all make me a Texan? No. Because Derek does it. I think I've rubbed off on him. <laughs> right? He says y'all sometimes, and he's not a Texan. Saying y'all doesn't make you a Texan. I say y'all because I am a Texan. Do you see the difference? It's not a condition to become something. It's a condition of already being something. And this is similar to what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. We show that we are God's house by holding fast to our confidence and boasting in our hope. It's what defines us. God's people hope in God. God's people are confident in God. God's people know that the only thing we have worth boasting about is God. And doing these things is not what makes you part of God's house. You do them because he has made you part of his house through the work of his son, Jesus. Again, it's not a condition of becoming. It's a condition of being. It's who you are because it's who he makes you. Okay? So let's look at the rest of the chapter. That's right, all of them, 7 through 19. Here we go. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence 
firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. All right, so that's a lot of verses. 7 through 19, and the first part of that section is a direct quote from Psalm 95. And again, it's something the Jewish people would be very familiar with. Um, A reminder of what happened in the wilderness. A reminder that despite seeing all the miracles of the Exodus, God's chosen people, Israel, had turned away from him. They had failed to trust him when it came time to enter the promised land. They didn't trust God could deliver the land to them as he had promised. What was it that, that stopped them? Scary giants, right? Think about everything they saw. And then they went into the promised land And they saw scary giants, and they thought, well, God can't handle that. This is what he's pointing out, this inconsistency here. And this reminder is given as a warning. By remembering how God worked in the past, the writer's giving a lesson to them, a lesson to the readers, and a lesson, of course, to us. Right after the Red Sea crossing, the Israelites were on cloud nine, on top of the world. They were rejoicing. They were worshiping. Exodus 15, 21 says, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. But it didn't take long for grumbling to begin. They complained about water. They complained about food, about other provisions, quickly getting to the point of longing for what they had in Egypt. It actually starts three verses after that triumphant song that they were just singing. They grumble about what they're going to drink right after crossing the Red Sea and God seeing, seeing God do an amazing miracle on their behalf. And when they get to the border of the promised land and God sends in the spies and the people hear the report, they freak out. Scary giants, right? They freak out. They don't trust God. They think their situation is hopeless. They don't think God can deliver the land to them. And so here's what they plan to do. We find this in Numbers 14, verses 1 through 4. And it'll be on the screen for you. All the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land just to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become victims. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So again, after all they've seen and been through, after all they've witnessed God do, already they have this reaction, longing to return to the abuse of slavery at the hands of an evil Pharaoh. Or better yet, they're like, why didn't we just die? It might be better to just be dead out here in the wilderness or back in Egypt. This isn't even the first time they're grumbling. We see a few chapters ahead of that in Numbers 11, 4 through 6. The rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we used to eat for free in Egypt. The cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone and there's nothing at all to look at except this manna. Now what was manna? 
it was a miraculous provision of food and nourishment that God was giving them each and every morning. And yet here they are calling down a miracle, talking down about the miracle God was giving them, and dreaming about the time where they could have some fish for free in Egypt. Well, was it really free? No. It was under the bondage of slavery and the intense uh, mistreatment that they were so happy to get away from uh, when they were crossing the Red Sea. This loss of confidence in God is very important to the writer of Hebrews. And the overall point, remember, is to consider Jesus and hang in there to persevere because that's the proof of truly being part of God's house. He says, remember the history of Israel because you don't want to be like them. You don't want to repeat those mistakes. Instead of allowing the works of God that they had witnessed to strengthen their faith and soften their heart for the hard times that came, they hardened their hearts and they took God for granted, not trusting in his goodness, his power, his provision. Again, they rejoiced when they were set free from Egypt. They, they were excited about that salvation, about that freedom. But as soon as things got a little bit difficult, they longed to return and they showed that their faith was never truly in God to begin with. They were not able to enter the promised land, the promised rest. And what does he say is the reason? Because of unbelief. It seems to be they had a belief of opportunity, right? They believed it as long as it was good for them, but they didn't really have a firm conviction in what was going on and what, was, and what God was providing. You know, have you ever known anybody that seems to change who they are based on who they're with or what they hope to gain by presenting themselves a certain way with a certain crowd. We always make fun of teenagers for doing that, but they're not the only ones. It follows us through our adulthood as well. These people, they end up being like personality chameleons. It's hard to really know who they actually are and what they really care about. And think about yourself. You know, if we're honest, I think we can probably all remember a time where we portrayed ourselves based on what we thought others would accept instead of what we truly thought or, or who we truly were or what we were truly convicted about. We do that in our spiritual lives as well, and it described what happened to the Israelites. So again, back to this warning in verses 12 through 14 of chapter 3 in Hebrews. The writer says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So what causes us to fall away again? It's an unbelieving heart. The issue in this text is one of the heart. It's a matter of believing, trusting, hoping in God with your whole self. It wasn't the grumbling that caused the entire generation to pass while wandering in the wilderness. It was their lack of faith in God. The grumbling was a symptom of their unbelieving heart. And when we have persistent sin in the face of God's mercy, it's a sign of an unbelieving heart. When we don't trust God is in control, it's a sign of an unbelieving heart. The warning here is not to watch out so you don't lose your salvation. The warning is to check your heart to be sure you've truly put your faith in Christ, that you truly have the conviction that Jesus is who he said he is and does what he says he can do. The warning is to be sure of who your heart belongs to. Because when our heart doesn't belong to Jesus, it can be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So what can we do to, to keep from ending up like the Israelites? Well, he says, first, consider Jesus. But 
the writer also tells us to exhort, to encourage one another every day all the time. Encourage one another every day all the time. We need the encouragement of one another. We're involved with one another to help avoid the deceitfulness of sin. We encourage each other to truly consider Jesus, to know that he's the apostle, the high priest, the substitute, the propitiation for our sins. Our involvement with one another is an ingredient in the condition of our heart. That's why we talk about community so much. It's why we emphasize groups so much. We need one another. We need that encouragement. We need that exhortation. Our involvement with one another is an ingredient in the condition of our heart. So this is a warning against the nominal Christianity. A warning against putting your trust in anything other than the saving, redemptive work of Jesus. And we need to take this warning extremely seriously. Because remember, the analogy is with Israel. They weren't just a ragtag bunch of people. They were God's chosen people. God's chosen people. As professing believers, we must check our hearts and make sure we aren't putting our faith in church attendance or being good or just because I don't want to go to hell and I want to go to heaven or I just think it'll make my life easier. None of those things are the convictions we should hold. It's we can't be spiritual chameleons that change based on what we hope to receive in the moment. Because when difficulties come, when we're pressed, when we're attacked, that foundation will crumble. And we will be just like the Israelites. Our unbelieving heart, our true character will be exposed. That's what the writer's talking about here. That's what he's warning against. It's a sign of looking back at what the world has to offer, of longing for the days of slavery. And that's a terrifying condition to be in not interested in the things of God, ignoring the power and the provision of God, finding the pleasures of the world more attractive than walking with him. Does persevering make you gain or lose your salvation? No, but we persevere because we are saved, because of the power and person of Jesus. Perseverance in the face of difficulty is a proof that you have truly come to share in Christ, that your heart is truly his, that he is truly Lord of your life. And so we look around today, we're surrounded by difficulty, hardship, great need, and the writer of Hebrews wants to encourage us to first consider Jesus, focus on him, understand that he's your apostle and the high priest. Know who your heart belongs to and encourage one another against the deceitfulness of sin. And secondly, that followers of Jesus are part of God's house and we will hold fast and boast in our hope, and that is Jesus. So I've had this weird thing on the table this whole time. And I'm not used to having a table here because I, I like walk around. Uh, usually I stand in the middle. But I also have some Mentos. Now, I don't know if you know what happens when you put Mentos in Coke. Anybody know what happens? Yeah, it's a big explosion, right? And today's Family Sunday, so I thought we would have some fun and make a real big mess up here. Uh, uh, yeah, doesn't that sound exciting? Yeah. <laughs> Don't get the Bible wet. That's a good idea. Well, I tested this a bunch. You, don't, you would not believe how much soda I bought to, and oil to make this work. Um, this isn't just a bottle of soda, though, because if it was and I dropped this Mentos in there, it would explode and go everywhere. But we've got an added ingredient. We've got vegetable oil at the top. And the cool thing is, and I, it's going to be big so you can see it, and I'm going to get out of the way. I really hope this works. All right. So I dropped the Mentos in. You can see some bubbles. You can see some reacting. 
but it's not exploding. It's not doing what it's supposed to. If you want to see what it usually does, you can go to Facebook or Instagram and you can see, but yeah, there's something happening. But usually it just shoots straight out the top uncontrollably. And I'm really getting nervous right now. <laughs> it's doing more than I wish it would right now. <laughs> if I put the cap on real quick, you'll have to pretend it worked. All right. But here, these three ingredients signify the three things we're talking about in this message. Anybody else getting nervous? <laughs> right? The Mentos, the Mentos represents the deceitfulness of sin. The soda represents our heart, our life, and what can happen when we let the deceitfulness of sin into our heart. But the oil, in this example, is the power of Jesus for a heart surrendered to him. That's why I really hope it doesn't fail, because Jesus doesn't fail. <laughs> right? The oil is the power of Jesus. There's still a reaction. We're still dealing with sin. We're still in our humanity. But the power of Jesus contains the destructiveness of sin. The identity we have in Christ keeps it from destroying who we are. It, it allows us to persevere knowing because of who he is and what he's done. And it did work, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I did all that testing. Whew. All right. So if you're seeking answers anywhere other than Jesus, Hebrews 3 warns you to examine your unbelieving heart. Because when the deceitfulness of sin comes along, it's going to have a big reaction. It's going to have fertile ground to cause destruction in your life and in your heart. Consider Jesus... Fix your eyes on him. Abide in him. Jesus is God in the flesh so that we can know God. Jesus is the sinless sacrifice so that we can be right with God. And here's our question again. When we're pressed and our true heart is exposed, what will it show? Because the writer of Hebrews says, when you're part of God's house and you're pressed, it shows the power of Christ and what he can do uh, to restore the relationship with God that we were created to have. So let's pray together. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you that because of who Jesus is, we can persevere. God, I know there's nothing in me that can do it. I have no power. I'm not able to withstand that uh, reaction of sin in my heart. But God, Jesus did. He gets it. He gets us. He came and became one of us. He experienced temptation without giving in, and therefore he can be the substitute. He can be the Lord. He's in control, and yet he invites us to be part of that relationship with you because of who he is. God, I thank you for that miracle. May we never take it lightly. And may things like a simple Coke bottle example really make it real. Make us understand it. Help us to consider Jesus in a new way, in a real way. And God, if there's anyone in this place today that has not surrendered their heart to you, that today would be the day of salvation for them. And it is in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So